So hi, Andrew. Uh, welcome to Ehex FM. And uh, first, you are a new guest on the show. So my first question is, how you started programming? And uh, yeah, so what was your first Hello World? And what was your first computer? Ah, that's a, a long time ago. Um, so probably about 1982, it would have been a home computer uh, in the UK called uh, Dragon 32. And it would have been written in basic, I think. Uh, and then I started writing assembler and then did computer science university and then and then started working for IBM. So, you know, originally at home. Oh, perfect. And how, how old were you? Uh, about 12, something like that. Hey, cool. So I had uh, ZX Spectrum or Amstrad. This is actually also a UK invention, right? Yeah, that's right. Perfect. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit older, older than that by probably about two years, something like that. Okay. And um, uh, do you know Java? So you wrote some Java code already? Yes, I, I've, I've written a lot of Java. Oh, perfect. And uh, when you started with Java? <clears throat> um, I'm not entirely sure, actually, because I, I wrote a little bit at home when it was still very new. So it would have been Java 1.0. I think. Uh, and then, you know, kind of around 2000, I started doing it professionally. Okay. Uh, so I, I worked on web server application server. I wrote some of the code in that. Uh, but yeah, originally for hobbies, I think. Oh, interesting. Uh, web server application server. So which part uh, were you responsible or what, what was your area? Uh, so we, we wrote a, a new JMS provider inside web server application server version 6. Uh, and I was one of the uh, kind of component leads for that. Uh, so... I, I was responsible for taking the messages from JMS interface and writing them into the store where we, you know, make sure that we don't lose them um, if, if the server crashes. Okay, funny because I had my uh, one of the first commercial J Java. This was before Java, -E, but uh, it was a swing with JMS project for an insurance company. It was around two thousands, and they used uh, MQ series on the backend on ZOS and or ZOS, and uh, they used. Um, MQ client for Java, I think this was the name. And then we switched to GMS because, uh, yeah, this was just a thin interface or adapter layer uh, above uh, MQ client for Java. And we could use exactly the same technology without being depending too much on the um, uh, IBM drivers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand that stuff, yes. Perfect. So now um, why I wanted to talk with you is the uh, the, the following situation. Um, so I'm in microservice area with Java, uh, OpenLiberty. I'm using OpenLiberty, Whitefly, Payara, Tommy, and the application servers. And uh, what people would like to do is to have a communication protocol between their servers. And uh, and for unknown reasons, GMS is um, is considered as complicated or how to call it or. or comes with lots of ceremony, which is not true at all. So you can actually send a GMS message with one line of code and receive a message with on message uh, method. And instead, for instance, they had in-house uh, MQ series installed and they say, hey, uh, we just need messaging, but uh, MQ series is way too complicated for no reasons. And uh, let's switch to Kafka, but we actually don't need persistence in Kafka. We only would like you know, to, to exchange message. And um, what I did several times already, if there is MQS in place, this is really very, very simple to send or receive a message uh, via MQS. And uh, because what you only need is, it is called, I think, MQRR. This is like the resource adapter. This has to be in the class path, and this is basically it. So then you can uh, send and receive messages. 
So um, what do you think that the perception is that the people think or developers think that JMS is too complicated and uh, they and they assume that Kafka is more simple? I well, I yes, it, it isn't really more simple, is it? So I think I think it's probably partially fashion. Uh, so I, I think if, if we're thinking about it in terms of Java Enterprise, then I think that has a bit of a, um, a, a reputation for being kind of complicated and quite a high learning curve. So um, I think I think that's that's part of it. If you're looking at JMS kind of standalone, um, I, again, I think it's 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 primarily fashion. Um, yeah. I find that quite a lot of programmers, quite a lot of programming or stuff which are being employed by companies or being recruited by companies aren't necessarily even Java programmers. So even Java is a little bit like that because, you know, it's quite verbose if you want to just set up a simple class. There's a lot of typing to do that doesn't really do very much like, you know, the, um, you know, public static void main kind of style of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think it's a similar kind of thing for messaging. It's just kind of, well, I'd, I'd like to have something which is a little bit, little bit easier to approach and, and and kind of probably a little bit more fashionable. But I think actually, writing your first Kafka application is harder than your first JMS application. Yeah, because you know the, um, you know the, the API is asynchronous and and that kind of thing. It's it's, it's a pretty complicated thing to get right. Yeah, absolutely, and um, even if you write a Kafka application, I mean it is um, it, it is I would say if you if you know Java, it's simple to set up and to run the application. But the problem is uh, running uh, Kafka in production is a completely different story. And what I see, many projects fail because they start, you know, with Hello World Kafka without any HR availability setup. And then they really struggle to have uh, Kafka set up properly in production. So this is also like, you know, untold story um, that uh, if you have uh, messaging, so messaging systems are really hard to scale because uh, you have to know what you are doing, right? Yes, you you need to think them through, don't you, and, and have a kind of a plan before you uh, get too 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 deeply involved. Yeah, exactly. And um, what I would um, is there what I what I already saw is there is something like MQ Lite from IBM. So this is like uh, MQ Series Lite where you can freely download. You know that? I do know that. Yeah. And uh, um, is it also available through GMS interfaces or only through the uh, MQ client? Uh, so I think I, I think that was kind of a complicated story, and, and I think I think it's probably <clears throat> it's probably fair to say it's a it's a historical one now. So um, we, we were trying to kind of um, address the fact that the APIs uh, we have in messaging were probably you know a little bit more complicated than they needed to be. Even though they're not all that hard, if you're new to messaging, then there was a bit of a learning curve. Uh, so the idea, and, and also um, particularly in microservices environments, you find that different microservice teams choose different programming languages. So we kind of needed a an API which was um, available across a, a variety of popular um, programming languages in a kind of, um, in a way that was sympathetic to the expectations of the programmers. So, uh, you know, a Node.js version which worked nicely with Node and a Java version that worked nicely with Java and one for Ruby and that kind of thing. Um, and And I think in terms of API design, it worked quite well. But in terms of kind of um, interest, after we've done it, um, not as successful as we hoped, I think. Uh, and yeah, then it's supported by the MQ product, you know, by by, by main MQ. But we also tried doing it on the cloud as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and, and also trying to use the, that, that MQLite API on top of Kafka so that we were kind of abstracting the API away from the messaging engine. Uh, and, and I think we would experience showed us that the, the, the kind of the fit between Kafka and that API wasn't as good as we'd hoped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's a big difference in the way that Kafka and MQ work, right? And trying to kind of hide some of those differences proved a little bit kind of difficult. Yeah. And and then at the end of the day, um, because Kafka had quite a kind of uh, a surge interest, then the amount of people with Kafka skills increased at the same time. So it was kind of less advantageous to have a simple API because people knew how to use Kafka directly. Yeah, and uh, now the question regarding this: uh, Are the uh, is the amount of people increasing who know the Kafka APIs or who can ab- who are able to run Kafka in production? I think the I think the skills are increasing quite fast um, in both of those areas, mm-hmm. and you know there are articles written about how to run Kafka in production, so you can you know get get a bit of a leg up if you're starting from scratch these days mm-hmm. rather than have to roll it all yourself. And there's also, you know, all, all the major cloud vendors have Kafka services these days as well. So if you just want to put your toe in the water, then you, you can do that with with any of the clouds without having to run it yourself. Yeah, this is actually very reasonable. So don't run, you know, Kafka by yourself, just buy a third-party service. Then you can, then it's a completely different story. But, you know, uh, yeah. to, to creating or, or or setting up Kafka in a, in a microservice project, this is like complete overkill because you will spend at least one week with stress tests and you know, with the setup, particularly in with Docker or OpenShift-like environments, right? Yes, yes, indeed. And, and and if you if you decide to use Kubernetes, then it's even more complicated. You know, yes, it's a, it's kind of a good environment to do it in, but there are complexities to do it. I think. Yeah. So now I would like to share to share a short story with you. And I was a young team. They use ActiveMQ, I think, directly with Java, and there was actually a lot of bootstrapping and setup code. And they hired me to help them a little bit, and I took a look at the code and just rewrote everything with a simple Java application. And they they didn't knew what Java actually is, and I just uh, I showed them the code, the resulting code, and they asked me what is it, and they say, okay, this is just you know the old school Java. I am just injecting NQ, sending the message with one liner, GMS context send message, and you are set. And what they did without my knowledge. They rewrote within two days the whole application and run them on Java E because the code was easier to understand. <laughs> this is like happened, you know, last last year in November, October, around that. And this happens to me over and over again, like uh, because if you don't have like the uh, server environment, you will have to bootstrap and uh, implement the whole bootstrapping, threading process, configuration process by yourself. And this is a uh, lots of bloat. Yes, indeed. You you do get a lot of um, a lot of things kind of done on your behalf, don't you? If you use one of the frameworks, so yes, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. And and now I'd like to to talk a little bit about the differences between um, between Kafka and uh, MQS or GMS. So Kafka for me is actually a complete different architecture. So Kafka is uh, a persistent event store. So the, I would say the killer use case for Kafka would be like you have a you know cloud of IoT devices, they're sending you data and you use Kafka as a buffer. So the data remains in the buffer and you can just rewrite the devices. And um, JMS or MQS is like more like messaging. So it's uh, less about streaming and more about messaging back and forth. And um, with JMS, so you have you know point-to-point and, and publish-subscribe. And with, uh, with Kafka, 
you this is more like uh publish subscribe is the i would say the primary uh the primary way to go so that th- there is some overlap but there is not a lot of overlap so i would say the whole, the whole discussion or discussions or trying you know to implement with kafka everything and <laughs> as what happens to me like say we need we, we would like to use kafka but we don't need the persistence so this is actually a completely misuse of kafka kafka so what is actually your take on that yeah, I think I think you're essentially right. Um, you know, we we think of it as there being two different styles of messaging. There's message queuing, which is the you know the MQ and, and JMS kind of end of things, and there's event stream, which is the Kafka end of things. Uh, and uh, architecturally, uh, they're 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 pretty different. Um, and if if you think about those two extremes, there are plenty of kind of use cases in the middle where you could kind of make the choice for either technology. You have to write your application in a way which is sensitive to to what to the technology you chose, but you could kind of make either choice. Um, and I think I think the the big difference is that that with a Kafka system, it remembers historical data. So if you wanted to um, run analytics on something which was sent over the past week or something, then Kafka will um, accumulate that data for you easily without you having to kind of write your applications in a way to not kind of destroy it on the way through. So it, it it's kind of a very good concentrator or a very good buffer or a very good kind of system for um, for events that are kind of, uh, you know, moving in the same direction. It's kind of a, a streaming kind of feel to it. But you really would struggle to um, to write a kind of a conversational system using Kafka, whereas with a message queuing system, that's much, much easier. You can do kind of request reply, and the APIs are richer, and you kind of get a bit more help if you're trying to do something with your application, I think, with a message queuing system. This is actually why, why I invite you to AirHexFM, because... Uh, what I see in my projects is uh, um, th- everywhere uh, developers try to misuse Kafka exactly for you know service to service communication. Also, for instance, there is already MQ series installed. Many clients have it on on the backend. Um, and uh, why I'm why I'm talking about uh, MQ series all the time. The reason is the reason being is uh, regardless whether we use Kafka or JMS. In my point of view. The really hard thing to do is the following. If you think about a queue or a topic, it conceptually, it is a kind of a singleton, a distributed singleton. So you are sending the message to, to something, which is, like say, a conceptual singleton. And if it fails, something, un- other, something different has to you know, wake up and take over the responsibility of the singleton. And uh, this is what you always had to do in order to run MQ systems or messaging systems in a distributed fashion in cluster. So you had to set up multiple nodes, and usually one node, you know, is the master, and all others are slaves and are waiting until the first node dies. Or you have a kind of distributed cache or or store, and um, this is why Kafka is hard to set up. Uh, I just uh, I think the broker properties is about 120 key value pairs, uh, which uh, which um, uh, describe actually the uh, cluster configuration, and also you know um, messaging systems like ActiveMQ or Artemis are also hard to set up because they have exactly the same challenges, right? Uh, yeah, yes, I, I I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, yeah, they, the, the the ones which are kind of single servers are much much easier to deal with, aren't they? And if you just want to do a little bit of light messaging, then you you just kind of fire a big process, and then and then you're kind of done. Yeah, and this is what it why it actually fails because you know setting a single server is fine for development, and in production there's a huge struggle because no one ever tested you know the server running in a cluster. Yes, 
yes, indeed. <clears throat> and if you have multiple microservices, you have the problem that if you have no uh, weak, you know, uh, MQ or not as available MQ system, if it breaks, everything broke, regardless how highly available your microservices are. If your uh, MQ system or a queuing system or JMS system is not uh, available, everything will break, right? Yes, so that that is one nice thing about Kafka, right? The, the, the fact that it's got the high availability built into it. So, um, you know, even if one of the brokers crashes, you're you're going to have a, a worst a, a kind of a performance blip while um, while leadership is transferred to another broker. Exactly, um, but you but, will have to then, set up. Then you get the complexity. Yeah, but you yeah. Yeah, exactly you will have to set up you know Kafka from day one with multiple brokers and test it properly on in container-like environment, usually. This is what most of my clients are running, which is not trivial. Yes, yes, indeed, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the same is true, of course, for, for MQ or MQS. But the difference is, in most companies, MQS is already running. So uh, they, they know that the whole business is running on MQS for years. So uh, what, uh, what you only have to do, you know, to set up a GMS queue and you are ready to go. And this is what I... D did uh, several times in projects suggested to my clients and they were surprised how easy it was you know just to run stock mqs or stock they already run then for for batch processing and everything else and we just reused some queues or topics for service to service communication and this was surprisingly easy yes yes i i think you're right yeah so um yeah and though, i think there's there's one other thing which i think is probably um Uh, kind of uh, interesting to touch on here for, for microservices. And that's that's essentially the difference between queues and topics. Uh, because, you know, queues are typically easier to deal with in terms of the, the kind of the consumption model. Um, but topics are kind of nicer because you get, you know, one-to-many publication. And and I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I normally would prefer to use topics for everything, um, but I like the kind of the capability of sharing a queue. And that's that's always a little bit of a of a challenge. Certainly with Kafka, it's it's basically not possible to do that. Yeah, I mean the the killer use case for MQ or MQS was you know deliver once and only once. So the idea is that if you send something to a queue, what usually happens, the GMS stores the message in a single transaction in kind of store, and then in the subsequent transaction it is reread and uh, the uh, deliver attempt is made until the transaction commits. So this is the usual. Uh, process of persistent queues and from I would say from business perspective this is what usually happens if you have some you know business transaction like payments so you would like you know to send the payment uh, order just once uh, and not multiple times and and topics are more like broadcast and I think the main difference is um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong but in JMS and MQS uh, how it's called durable subscribers and so-called persistence topics are more or less a bad practice because you don't you, you shouldn't do this um and and and, and queues persistence or transit queues are just normal so persistent queues for from business perspective deliver once and only once and and transient queues if if it uh if it can you know if you don't need the durable the reattempts of delivery And um, and in Kafka, it's more like, you know, we have a topics which are all, always persistent. So this is uh, almost the opposite of GMS, right? Or uh, of MQS or any GMS server I know. Yes, but the, uh, I suppose the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, from the point of view of the of, of kind of the sender of the message, it's actually quite nice to use a topic 
because uh, you know that way you might have you might have multiple consumers of the data, some of which you don't even know about yet. Uh, who you know maybe maybe you've got a business application that wants exactly wants delivery, but actually you'd like to be able to log the messages to something else or send them off to an analytics system or something like that. So publishing onto a topic in a way that has the message handled in an exactly once uh, way downstream is kind of a nice a, a nice kind of blend of the two models. And you can of course do that with MQ, right? Because effectively a subscription is a proper queue and you can do the assured delivery on that. Yeah. So it, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so bl- 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 blending queues and topics, I think, is, is a pretty good way forward. Yeah, so you have the... Uh... That's interesting what you said because uh, we had the requirements that the queue has to be consumed, uh, the message has to be consumed only once. So if it is you no know, taken from the queue no other subscriber gets the message. So like from business requirement, it's of course harder to achieve with topics, right? With persistent topics. It, it is. It, it, yes, yes, that's true. But um, but I think the people who are thinking like that, they're not, they're not necessarily looking at the bigger picture of the kind of, all right, well, what if you actually wanted to order everything that went through this? You know, maybe you actually kind of want to feed off to the side, even though the business application is, is processing like a queue. So, you know there there are there are different ways of um, of handling this and and uh, you know some people have a kind of a slightly um, richer view of messaging and will think about it in a slightly broader context. I think. Okay, and um, so what do you think is uh, now still you know the killer use case of of GMS and the um, so would be of GMS or MQS and the killer use case of classic Kafka. Uh, so, so I always think of JMS as, as really just an API on top of a message queuing system. Yeah. So I don't think the a- API as such has a killer use case by itself. Um, you know, I, I, but having said that, it is the API that I tend to use if I'm writing a messaging application. So I like it. I just it, it's just an API. Um, and in terms of MQ, um, I, th- I think the killer use case is when you when you um, you, you coordinate it with it with some kind of other other system, uh, and then you get you know transactional integrity in, in combination with something else. So if you're writing some um, business application that's using say a database and messaging together, then be able to coordinate the two resources together and and commit them. Uh, you know, using a, using a distributed transaction is really nice because it means the complexity of coordination is in the middleware rather than the newer application. So that's that's really good. Um, for Kafka, yeah, it's it's all about event streaming. So, so the one you were mentioning earlier about IoT devices sending a vast amount of data and using Kafka as a kind of a concentrator, putting all the, the the data from all of the devices on a single topic, and then scaling it as wide as you need to with as many partitions as you want, and having all of the data kept in order um, and uh, you know reprocessable because it's all it's all persisted um, is, is is a really nice model. But it's it's very different from the kind of the business application, which is doing everything in coordination with another resource manager. Mm-hmm. You already uh, mentioned the two-phase commit or distributed transactions. Um, yeah. The the interesting part of two-phase yeah. commit is because uh, I think uh, you uh, just um, I think you are aware of XA. You did a lot of work with that, and um, yeah. what people. What many people do don't know, this is actually not always safe. So some sometimes exceptions can happen. So like if you take a look at the XA exception, you will see that there are some like heuristic uh, mix or heuristic hazard and uh, heuristic rollback. So there can some side effects can happen, and this usually happens if I think uh, at the in the last phase one of the one of the resources don't has a timeout or doesn't answer properly, right? 
So I think I think the heuristic cases, um, you know, for a correctly coded system, they only happen if something really weird happens. So typically, um, if a system goes out of out of contact for a long time and an administrative decision is kind of applied, you know, saying, well, it must have been a rollback, and then the system comes back and actually it wasn't, then you've got a, you know a heuristic um, effect there where um, different parties have different views of what actually went on. Just a timeout that shouldn't have any effect because it's designed to kind of retry. Uh, if you're in the first phase, a two-phase commit, uh, and you fail to get uh, to make contact, then you're going to roll back because of presumed abort. If you're prepared, then it should just retry forever, essentially. Uh, and, and if you don't do that, then you're you're kind of in, in dodgy territory. Yeah, um, but it's, so, it's the same and, feedback, and, right? You will have to you know set up it properly, and uh, and uh, you will have to also you know to monitor and escalate XA exceptions to kind of you know backout queue, whatever, and should wake up your administrator if something like this happened, right? I suppose so, but I think I think my advice would typically be never take an administrative action, right? The, the, the middleware is designed to eventually make it all consistent if it's just given the chance to kind of settle down and carry on communicating. Uh, and if you get into a situation where you're taking administrative action, you need to be sure that you've gone kind of the right way. You either do the commit or the rollback and trying to work out which is the right decision is probably a little bit subtle. So, it, it, you know, it's normally better to get the system to work it out for itself. If you had some kind of um, integrity loss, you know, you, you, you lost um, a disk drive or something like that, and you have to go in and just deliver some kind of um, decision about the transaction's um, completion, then, you know, that's that's kind of, kind of unfortunate, but it should happen extremely rarely. I don't, I'm not really aware of heuristic um, effects in practice actually they're kind of theoretical usually i think yeah what i saw already is uh you know xa exception are just caught and completely ignored so they were not handled at all which is okay problematic and what can also happen of, yes. cor of, of course if you have application servers or transactions coordinators running running in docker for instance and they are coordinating two-phase commit and if they break the whole you know transaction lock is lost so, ah yes, okay. Is yeah. so this is a complete different story if you're running, you know, in distributed environment. But you are, you are right. If MQS is set up properly and runs, you know, on the host system, and uh, then it should will work because everything is tested. You know, in my world, is like uh, they starting, you know, an application and try to use two phase commit and hope everything will work without any problems, without any testing, and just uh, magically will happen, and then you get, you know, inconsistent systems. So it's a complete different world, yes. my and um, my world and yours. Um, yeah, this is why it was also background of the of the conversation. Is like you know uh, why we are misusing Kafka for having simple messaging, or sometimes even I saw the 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 other way around. They you know used uh, MQ to transport huge files uh, for persistence. We didn't make any sense either. Yes, I I, I get that. So the so the. Um... The, the very important thing about the distributed transaction is that everyone has to remember everything and they all have to kind of do what they're told faithfully, right? So you, when, you're, when you're told to commit, you have to commit and that kind of thing. And if anyone is kind of forgetful, then 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 it, then it all breaks. So it's, it's kind of fragile. And we use kind of, you know, high quality engineering to make sure that the system uh, always behaves itself. But it does does depend on on not kind of losing data so if you're running one of the participants in some kind of ephemeral way and it loses its recovery logs or something like that then uh, yes it ceases to be reliable yeah if you if you think about this what we what we covered so far is actually everything breaks you know with not having persistence done right so what we need is a simple 
but very uh, high available and consistent persistence. <laughs> if we have that, uh, then we will win. But if if we don't have that, then it's, it starts to break, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And this is one of the challenges if Kubernetes-like environments, because uh, you know uh, you, you, your pods are usually stateless, so the state is just the local file system which will disappear. So what you will have to do in order to set up Kafka or transaction distributed transaction system on a pod is to uh, you know to to write the persistent stuff to a to a folder, and the folder is then mapped by I think it's called persistent volume claim by Kubernetes to us to, to another location or somewhere else which is persistent, and this of course has to be low latency and very fast and so forth. This is actually the complexity which you will only see in production. Yes, and I, and I think I think you you can build the right kind of environment with Kubernetes, but it does it does take planning and uh, and kind of understanding. So yeah, it's not it kind of superficially looks quite simple, but um, but it, but it isn't in practice. Yeah, so I think what we I think the you know the the gist of the of our conversation is don't run complex stuff by yourself. <laughs> Try to you know either take something which is already installed in a company, so like a distributed transaction manager or uh, MQS. Or even Kafka, um, or buy it by clouds. Because uh, if you if you are in microservice environment and you try to set up Kafka, you know, uh, within your project, or try to set up a GMS cluster within uh, your project with the budget of your project, I would say this is a mission impossible. Yeah, it's it's certainly challenging. Okay, um, do you have any any thoughts on Java, Kafka, or uh, MQS, or Uh, with, with regards to what precisely? Your, your current work, for instance. Would you like to promote something? or? Oh, sorry. Uh, so I, I think the most, most of the work I do, I do currently is to do with um, uh, people trying to exploit Kafka in kind of business context and, and quite often with microservices, actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think they do, they do bump into a lot of the things we've been talking about here okay. with regards to, um, you know, Safe delivery of messages and sharing topics and, and and all this kind of thing. And I don't I don't really think there is a silver bullet. <clears throat> One of the things I find is that um, people have often chosen Kafka in advance because it's kind of it's kind of an up and coming technology, and then they try to work out how to fit the business problem around it. And it takes a lot of time to kind of do the conceptual education so that people don't kind of make a misstep. I think, and they kind of use the topics correctly. And and of course we we were talking about we were talking about coordination of resource managers and uh, and, and that kind of thing earlier. Um, oh, I think I've lost you. No, no, perfect. Are you there still? Ah, no, I, sorry, I had call ended through my headphones. That's all. <laughs> I'll okay. try again. That put me off. <clears throat> Let's try again. Yeah. So yeah, people people trying to use. Um, Kafka for microservices and uh, and not kind of understanding how you do things like consumer groups and sharing partitions and and all this kind of thing and how the scalability of the microservice depends on the way that you've deployed it on, on using using Kafka resources and then the fact that um, you're kind of in an eventually consistent world when you're using Kafka um, because uh, you know it's an asynchronous API and and, and that kind of thing um, and the data stores used with it can't be coordinated with it so you end up um, when you're trying to do things which use, you know, data stores and messaging together, 
mm-hmm. having to put the kind of complexity for coordinating these in your application logic. And that's a very different world than if you were doing it with MQ and kind of two-phase commit. So there's such a big difference between these technological approaches and people kind of underestimate it quite often, I think. Exactly. And uh, in your opinion, are, are, what do you see in uh, projects? Is Kafka running on bare metal or are they running Kafka on Kubernetes? Uh, so I, I think it's it, it depends. Um, in companies that have got a very kind of um, high level of Kafka skill, then I think they they tend to run it on bare metal or maybe you know in in, in a public cloud. But um, but as an as an infrastructure as a service, mm-hmm. um, and they're taking control of deploying it directly. I think uh, I think people who are um, kind of new to it uh, will often try to use Kubernetes um, instead or often use Kubernetes sometimes with the help of somebody like IBM to you know uh, provide them with an offering that you know, has done the hard work already. Uh, you know, so you just kind of click to deploy and you get a Kafka cluster. Um, but yeah, I think I think we see both. And I think often with Kafka, it started off by a kind of a, a grassroots effort where somebody has started running on a, on a server they had lying around just to kind of get something off the ground. And then they have to try and move it into production. But it often comes from grassroots like that. Mm-hmm. And how, uh, um, what, how you estimate, you know, the effort to set up Kafka without IBM? Let's say I'm a skilled Java programmer. I know a little bit about JMS, Nevis, or Kafka, and I would like to run Kafka in production. So um, how many days should I you know, try to set up, you know, or what would your rough rough estimate to run uh, Kafka in sem- semi-production manner with some testing, stress testing, and several brokers? So wh- how you will estimate the effort? Uh, I, I think it would be several months to finish it. Actually, not not just a few hours or a few days in order to do it properly. Okay, then then you know, you, yeah, I was too. You, know, you have you have to worry. Sorry, yeah, I have to have to worry about about the different failure modes and what happens if things fail and you know if if I lose a particular portion of the cluster, how does it recover and and and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and what one of the other things about Kafka is uh, it's it's quite kind of network heavy because it replicates all of the messages. Mm-hmm. Then you know you need to you need to make sure that the loads you're going to use in production can actually be accommodated by the infrastructure you've got um, in, in practice. You know if you, if you start off with a little test that it all looks nice, and then you kind of ramp it up, and you actually um, hit the saturation point of your network, then it's going to cause a throttling effect on the on the throughput you can achieve, which potentially you wouldn't have anticipated if you hadn't kind of done your calculations in advance. So you know it, it's quite a um, a detailed thing to set up correctly if you look at all of the all of the factors in play. Mm-hmm. And you will also have, you know, to, to implement somehow the not split brain problem, but you will have to shut down one one broker and see whether it, you know it, it recognizes that. So it's actually a lot of work, right? Yes, and so I think I think the the shutdown part of it is fine, but um, but the the other kind of aspect to it is what about when you restart the failed broker because it'll kind of go into catch up mode and try to re or try to um, replicate the data that was sent while it was down. And then eventually it will kind of re-establish its leadership of the partitions it used to own. Uh, And, uh, you know, this replication traffic is going to be uh, ongoing while your your business applications are running against the cluster. So you need to have enough capacity in the system to kind of cope with the recovery mode process as well as the forward, you know, um, uh, business application. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think ten years ago we had a system with two databases, and we found out with, when data one database fails, and then uh, is uh, offline then more for more than five minutes, um, we will never catch up because the network was too slow, you know, to deal with the ongoing incoming transactions and uh, data replication. This was actually interesting uh, lessons learned. Mm-hmm. 
10 years ago. Something like this kind of course happens with Kafka as well, right? That uh, the it, it can. It, it can. Now, in the, the, the other side of this is it is a very kind of cleverly designed system. So it has um, configurations you can set at many places in order to kind of um, limit the uh, resource usage of particular pieces mm -hmm. so that you can Uh, ensure that you don't get an you know an excessive application load, and that could give you sufficient capacity to make sure the system can catch up. But you're now getting into kind of highly detailed um, uh, configuration, which only a really knowledgeable person would be able to do. So you can make a robust system. It's just it takes a long time to get the skills to do it, and of course you need to test that you've actually done it right. So that's why I said months to kind of set it up properly. Um, even though you can get it functional in in a matter of hours, in order to kind of make sure it's bulletproof, it's much much bigger effort. Mm -hmm. I was uh, too optimistic in the past. So uh, last week I said we will need to know weeks if you really like to run uh, <laughs> Kafka in production properly. And they say weeks, okay, then uh, we have no budget for this, but months. But uh, absolutely with you, this is a piece of infrastructure which is actually has to be you no know, bulletproof. So there is not like you know, uh, yeah. absolutely. And um, do you have uh, do you know about that uh, similar offerings uh, for MQS on Kubernetes or Docker? Uh, so, um, so, so IBM, IBM makes um, a bit, uh, or uh, provides uh, resources for running MQ on Kubernetes and, and Docker. So, you know, um, we have uh, things like Docker files on GitHub and that kind of stuff, and they are supported environments. Uh, and then we have a Kubernetes environment called um, IBM Cloud Private, and you can you can run um, MQ and also Kafka. And it's called Event Streams in that case, but you can run them both on our Kubernetes infrastructure as well. So, you know, it makes it rather more consumable. You don't have to do all the hard work yourself. So, yes, that's entirely possible. And um, if I would run MQ in a cluster, what would is the you know um, the difference to running a Kafka in a cluster? So, how what MQ does behind the scenes to uh, replicate the topics? Can you tell about that? Yeah. So, um, so the idea, even even though the word cluster is used in both MQ and Kafka, they're really very different concepts. So, in Kafka. Um, you don't really message directly with a broker. You're kind of you're 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 really doing your messaging with a cluster, with a collection of brokers who are who are together providing the messaging service. And the topology of the cluster is kind of a dynamic thing, and resources can move around. And the messages within the within a partition will usually be configured to replicate onto other brokers, so you have kind of high availability. But you're kind of connecting to the whole cluster, and uh, and and it's doing the messaging for you. And MQ cluster is rather different because it's more like a kind of um, a collection of individual queue managers, and you're still working with one queue manager typically. Um, and uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of sharing of state between the queue managers to um, enable you to have um, you know queues with the same name hosted on different queue managers. But it's still rather more of a kind of um, client to server relationship, not kind of client to cluster, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I so it. Yeah, it's kind of workload balancing rather high, the rather than high availability, I think, in um, in in MQ. Whereas that it's kind of um, the two are combined a little more tightly in Kafka. So um, I use MQ once, and we at Architecture, like I had a local queue with I think it was embedded uh, MQ or something like this, where the message messages were stored, and the local queue was mapped to remote queue and replicated behind the scenes, and this was uh, looked really nice actually. You know what I mean? Yes, I do, I do. But you're still you're still kind of talking to a queue manager, yeah. and then the messages are being distributed from that point, right? So yeah, it's it's a little bit different. Yeah, of course. But uh, what what interests me what MQ does behind the scenes, you know, to to keep you know the queues alive. Yes. 
So what happens behind the scenes? You know that? Uh, so so yeah, but but, but basically, so um, the, uh, the, the there's kind of a directory in, uh, of the of the cluster resources, which is managed by um, by special queue managers called the repository, uh, and the queue managers, which are kind of non-repository, not full repository queue managers in the cluster, they kind of um, internally subscribe to the information from the full repository, so they understand which resources sit where, and then. Um, when you're making your application calls against the against the queue manager to put to say a cluster queue, it can work out where that queue is hosted based on this kind of view of the repository uh, repository's data. So that's sort of what happens on, behind the scenes. Now, in in a Kafka system, it's you know very very vaguely similar idea in that you can kind of ask questions about where resources live, but the data goes directly back to the client in that case, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it doesn't have this kind of intermediary. Uh, requirement to go through a particular broker to, to send messages, so you know a, a little bit different in terms of the, how they work, how they work behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, you've got this kind of workload balancing um, in both ways. Yeah, uh, both us uh, uh, MQ reminds me on consistent hashing, so you know in a way the data lives. Is that like the, the shared resources? Yes. Okay. Perfect. So, uh, <laughs> any any final thoughts on both or? Uh, I think I, I think but go back to what we said originally. You know, there, there are these two kind of um, different models of messaging: the message queuing and, and and the event streaming. And they're you know kind of two ends of, a, of of quite a broad spectrum of messaging. And an MQ is kind of specialized for one end, and and Kafka is specialized for the other. Um, and you know when you're kind of in between the two uh, two ends of, of the of the spectrum, then you kind of have the freedom to choose either technology. You just need to be careful to um, to make sure that whatever you do is kind of sympathetic to technology you choose. Perfect. Also, um, where people can find you? So, do you have a Twitter account or GitHub or IBM account or whatever? Uh, so um, I, I I don't use Twitter. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. So Andrew, Andrew Schofield, um, mm -hmm. and you'll you'll find me quite 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 easily as a, you know as an IBM on there. Um, I I I've actually um, I'm the author of the of, of IBM's connectors between Kafka and MQ uh, for Kafka Connect. Um, so I've I put those on GitHub. So if you do um, if you search for um, Kafka Connect MQ Source or Kafka Connect MQ Sync on on uh, on Google or uh, you know another search engine, um, then you'll find my my, um, my repos on GitHub um, or, or just email. So Andrew underscore Schofield at ukibm.com. So thank you um, and thank you for the clarification. It was a really great talk. You know to to find the differences between both architectures. So thank you. Okay, you're welcome.